engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 235, and today in the show, we are talking about public land whitetails. We are talking about stalking down deer on the ground. We are discussing being mobile, first time sits, finding the hot sign, and so much more. And to do that, we're joined by Zach Farenbaugh of The Hunting Public. All right, real quick before we get this one started, we want to thank our friends at Lacrosse Boots for their support of this podcast episode. Lacrosse produces some of the best knee-high rubber boots out there for whitetail hunters. I've been wearing them for a very long time now. Both the Alpha Burley Pros and the Arrowheads, they've worked great for me. They are waterproof. They are scent-free as they come. They are comfortable. They keep you warm. They do just about anything you need a boot to do in the whitetail woods. Plus, they're available in many different camouflage options and solid green and yellow if you like that throwback look, which is what I'm rocking this year. Been very happy with that. So if you are interested in checking out lacrosse boots for yourself, if you need some new kicks, head on over to lacrossefootwear.com and check them out. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today we're talking public land whitetails. And joining Dan and I is Zach Farenbaugh. And if you're a YouTube watcher, you're probably or possibly familiar with Zach because of his work with Midwest Whitetail in the past and his current work with The Hunting Public. If you're not familiar with these guys, gotta check them out. The Hunting Public, it's one of the absolute best Whitetail YouTube channels out there right now. Um, and it's Zach and it's Aaron Warburton, who was a guest of ours last summer, and a handful of other guys. They're putting out almost daily video blogs showcasing their public land hunts all over the place. They're, they're living in Iowa, but they're also going to other places like Nebraska, Kentucky, um, Missouri. I heard they're going to Alabama. Uh, who knows? They're all over the place. They're doing a great job. And I think it's, I think it's shining a great light on the public land opportunities that are out there. Uh, they're getting on some great bucks. They're showing that you can hunt quality, mature deer, even if you don't have a big farm and food plot. So I think that's awesome. I've really been enjoying what they're doing. And um, I think Zach's going to be a guy who has some, some interesting thoughts, some interesting stories. So I'm excited. Dan, I got to say, though, you know, I've been out chasing some public land bucks. Zach's chasing public land bucks. When are we going to get you to take the plunge? 
What, and hunt public land? Yeah, I got some stuff in here in Michigan that's just calling her name. <laughs> oh, okay, so it, oh, it has to be in Michigan. Yeah, yeah. I hunted, I hunted <laughs> on public last season, dude. You did? Early season. Oh, I guess you did, yeah. didn't you? I yeah. did. Yeah. And I hunted on public land this year during elk season. That doesn't so, count. So, I mean, do, that doesn't count? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Basically, I'm just trying to get you to leave your wonderful deer hunting and, and come down to <laughs> – Come down to my level so I feel less bad. <laughs> so ba- yeah, basically what you're telling me is, hey, Dan, we need you to hunt really shitty ground. Exactly. Because Okay. Because you you got it too good. Did you see did you see that comment on Facebook today? Um someone you asked on the Nine Finger Chronicles Facebook page if what people thought about high fence hunting. And someone oh, com- yeah. and then someone comments, Isn't that what it's like in Iowa? Or isn't it, so do you mean Iowa bow hunting? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly oh, like it. Man. Uh, so how are you otherwise? You uh you getting excited? Uh yeah, dude. I'm I'm starting to really think about this season um a lot lately. Uh, just from a planning standpoint, there's not much I can really do, but I know that I have a lot to do. So uh man, I don't know. I just feel like I'm really 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 behind this year. I haven't I haven't moved my trail cameras off the mineral sites yet because i haven't i've just been crazy busy uh, i haven't set up all the tree stands that i needed to set up because i've been crazy busy i mean all these are kind of excuses but um i i'm i'm playing this chess match right now me and time right so i have to be here for my kids and i have like i got back on my elk hunt right so now i have to really focus on the family for the next you know two weeks until I can get out. I might get out opening evening, October 1st, but then that weekend my wife has stuff going on. So I have to babysit. So it's just like, I don't know. I don't know. That's not easy. Right. And I, I got inspired because I was talking to this, uh, guy on the nine finger chronicles podcast, uh, this, this past weekend and he's found a lot of success early season um, bow hunting. And I want to kill a deer early season so bad. Like I don't – I want to find one and kill one that meets my standards and not have to go into the rut for some reason this year. I, I want to I get it done and get it done early. More power to you, man. That early season yeah. – I mean, I mean – the September hunts. Now I know you're not going to hunt in September, but I've really fallen in love with the September bow hunting, catching them yep. on that bed to feed pattern. They're really on a pattern, trying to decipher that quickly and make an adjustment and get on them. I mean, that's a lot of fun. Um, yeah. And I know Zach, he's going to have some stuff to talk about that because they do that a lot. Um, yeah. Certainly it's possible. Now, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, God. I guess what I was going to ask you was going to be related to your trail cameras, but you haven't checked your trail cameras yet this Dude, one in a long time. time, right? Yeah. Just one time. And you're not going to check them until you start hunting. Is that if I remember Pro- right? I mean, I have this rule that says uh, don't go into the timber during September, yep. period. And I, I mean, a lot of those, a lot of those trail cameras are on the edge of the timber. Like I could, I could drive to most of them uh, all except maybe two of them. But it's just, man, I like, I want to know what's there. I want to know what happened with this shift, right? I want to get my trail camera, more importantly, I want to get my trail cameras in position for October. 
So, uh, so that when the rut does hit, I have, you know, four, four and a half weeks of data to let me know, Hey, you know, when some of this stuff's going, when some of this stuff is going down. Yeah. Uh, you know, I know you've got that September rule, but if you can drive to stuff, that might not be a bad idea, even though you're going to go in there. As long as you stay with your car running, just move the camera from wherever it's at to a mock scrape or a scrape on the edge of the field. And if you drive, uh, you know, put some nose jammer where you put the camera, I mean, that might be worth yep. the, the tiny Absolutely. bit of negative risk you're taking there. It might be worth the increased intel you can get, especially if you're trying to kill one early because that you're going to need some data to, to figure that out. Yeah, that's a fact, man. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, we'll just see what happens. It's all it's all based off time. Yeah. And if I if I can make it, I can make it. If I can't, I can't. Yeah, I hear you there. I um, man, I don't know what about my early season chances over here in Michigan. My oh, my main Holyfield farm over there. I've got one wireless camera that's working, and I haven't got crap on that. Um, just does and like a spike. Even though the food plot it's on looks beautiful, I got a scrape tree in there all the does are hitting it, but, but nothing with any age, no sign of Holyfield yet. I've scouted a handful of nights watching over this area from the road. Nothing, not a single buck other than a year and a half old. Um, so that's discouraging, but the new property that I'm hunting, that other spot. Well, I saw that pick dude. Yeah. I saw that pick. I might hunt Michigan this year. <laughs> that's a pretty good looking buck, isn't it? His, that one brow tine just makes me happy for some reason. I don't know why. I think that is legitimately a 12-inch brow tine. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. You don't I, see that I, I love big brows. Yes, I agree. I've yet to – well, I've killed one deer with a really big brow tine. That uh, that buck six-shooter that I killed a handful of years ago, he had a pretty cool brow tine. Um, yep. But I've never really got one of those deer that have those two just huge eye guards. That would be – That'd be awesome. So this deer's got one insanely long one, and he has been coming in and out. This camera is set up just inside from a little kind of food source. It's some, I think it's wheat or oats or something in it, and um, there's super thick bedding right off of the edge of this food source, and there's a little two-track that cuts off of the field heading into that thick stuff. And so I put a camera on a mock scrape just along that two-track just inside off of the field, and... um, so I drove in there and pulled that card. I don't know. This was a week ago or something. And this big boy's on there pretty consistent, leaving in the evening, coming back in the morning, in and out, same way, um, still under the cover of darkness. But on the 12th or 13th or something like that, he was pretty close to daylight. It was like the, I don't know, within an hour. So I'm I'm glad to see there's a consistent mature buck like that coming in and out of there. And that's got me excited. So. It's always good when one of those shows up. Yeah. It's uh, right now the only mature buck I've seen on camera. So hoping uh, hoping for more good stuff to come soon. And you know how it is. Once October rolls in, at least at least for me in a lot of the spots I hunt, it seems like I never have one of those farms just loaded with summer bucks. Ah, I'll take that back. The Ohio spot we hunted, that used to be loaded with summer bucks. But none of my Michigan areas. So fingers crossed that they show up and – when season kicks off, there'll be something to something to go after. But we got less than two weeks, right? I know, man. I uh, I don't know whether I should. I don't know whether I should be more excited or less excited because I'm in this state of limbo now, where I feel like if 
I go if I get excited now, I'm just going to have my spirits crushed with, hey, okay, so we have plans for this, 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 and this for this October, and then uh, <laughs> you got three kids, and I'm not going to watch them all the time. You went on a one week elk hunt, uh, so there's that, and so I don't know. I just every year. I don't know how this is for for the guys out there who their wives kind of give them grief a little bit. But every year I have to have a conversation and every year it's the same conversation as the conversation from the previous year. And then someone someone ends up not getting to do what they want to do and someone like holds it against the other person. (laughs) Man, doesn't she get to do what she wants to do the rest of the year, though? Don't you yeah, pretty much does. give in the whole rest of the year because you're trying to save your brownie points for right now? Yeah, I do. But her things are like maybe one day at a time. So like for me, that elk hunt was eight days, right? Yeah. That's eight days of having to watch my three kids. Like Mark, I have full confidence that you can go out into the into the harshest mountains and survive for eight days. But I'm not so sure I would put money on you if if you had to watch my three kids for eight days. <laughs> yeah, they look they look rough. <laughs> um, maybe we need to do. I think I, I can't remember if this was last year or two years ago that I paid for babysitting for you. <laughs> <laughs> for, maybe for like one one or two days. Yeah, I got you a couple of days of babysitting. I think maybe we need to do, create a Kickstarter for all the audience, the wired on audience. <laughs> To Let chip in, Kickstarter. Chip in to get you some babysitting time. <laughs> oh man, that'd be awesome. Yeah, I bet. Honest to God, I bet you we'd get, get a lot of money. <laughs> I know, I know. People want to see you hunt, Dan. They just want I, you to live out your dreams. I know, and I would, I would, I'd probably just take that money. <laughs> <laughs> take your wife out to dinner. Take her out to dinner. Get those brownie points. But go. that's that's the goal in the next two weeks is. Just make her as happy as humanly possible. Well, you you work hard at that because uh, we need some good stories from you this this uh, October. So, oh, yeah. should we uh, should we get Zach on though? Because Zach's already been hunting; he's got some good stories to tell, and uh, I think we'll have an interesting conversation. Sounds good. All right, let's do it. All right, let's take a quick second here to thank our partners at Onyx. Onyx is the producer of the Onyx Hunt app, which is something that I'm using probably just about daily. It's something that I know that Zach is using almost daily. It's a tool that's going to allow you to see your aerial views of maps, going to allow you to see topographic views of maps, it's going to allow you to see property line information overlaid so you can see where the private property borders are, you can see where the public land is, you can see where trails are, campgrounds are, you can Oh my gosh, you can see so many different things. There's even, if you're heading out west, do some elk hunting, your mule deer hunting, you can overlay where the recent burns have been um, back here in the Midwest and the east where we're worried about CWD. There's now a layer where you can overlay where CWD has been found. Um, so many different options here. Tremendous tool. I'm heading off for an elk hunt tomorrow, and I will have my Onyx app up and running probably the entire time, tracking where I'm at, watching and seeing where I'm going, plotting out where we want to head next. Um, just something that I've found very valuable and I imagine you would too. And if you are interested in checking it out, if you haven't yet, you can get the Onyx Hunt app over on just about any mobile app store. And if you use the promo code WIRED, W-I-R-E-D, you can get 20% off your order. That promo code is W-I-R-E-D. All right, we are back now with Zach Farrenbaugh. Welcome to the show, Zach. Thanks for having me. 
yeah, I'm, I'm excited to chat because, uh, you know, we had Aaron on the show last summer and enjoyed that yep. conversation, but you are kind of like the wild card of the hunting public, <laughs> I feel like. And, and my buddy Dan over here, he's like the wild card of the Wired Hunt podcast. <laughs> so so I, I needed to make sure to connect you guys. <laughs> and uh, this should be an interesting conversation because of that, I think. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. Um, yeah, I like that. I like I like the wild card name, or you know, kind of being that guy. I like that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> no, no expectations that way. What's that? No expectations that way. Yeah, exactly. That that's exactly the way I like it. No expectations. What I what I think we got to do to get like the perfect hunter look would be to take Zach's hair and Dan's rut hunting beard. And if we combine those two things together, we'd have the most amazing bow hunting hair of anyone out there. <laughs> I agree. I agree a hundred percent. I can't grow facial hair with a damn, like I just can't grow it. I've tried my whole life. I can't do it. So yeah, if I could get a beard on it, I would do it, but just can't, can't make it happen. Well, hey, I feel your pain, man. I'm right there with you. So <laughs> can't can't have it all. That's right. Um. So so for those who are not familiar, you know, when we had Aaron on the show last year, you guys hadn't started the hunting public yet. Um. So mm-hmm. can you give folks a kind of quick overview of of how that came to be, and uh, and then we'll kind of go from there. Yeah. Um. Aaron, Greg. And I, we were all working at Midwest Whitetail. Those guys had been there for, I think both of them started in 2000 or 2010. Greg started and then 2011, Aaron started. And then I started there in 2015 and we worked there. We had a lot of buddies that worked there at different times too. And um, I guess it was just, you know, kind of got to a point where we wanted to really start branching out and, and, you know, kind of take a risk and go out on our own and really own what we were doing. And, you know, we, um, just kind of went for it, I guess, and didn't, didn't really know if it was going to be anything that was, you know, going to be sustainable or, you know, if it was, we were going to be, be able to continue to keep doing, you know, just, just hunting industry type stuff. So, I guess we started a, originally we just started simply like a production business and our main goal was to, um, you know, just do all kinds of different projects, anything from, you know, senior photos, weddings to, you know, maybe some hunting videos. And the first fall or first couple months there in the fall, we just kind of used up all the money that, you know, or what very, very little money we had. We just kind of used it all up and bought equipment and started hunting and just started making hunting videos because that's what, you know, we really wanted what we were going to do <laughs> until we ran out of money and ended up, you know, I guess gaining some traction there enough to at least keep it going through the fall. And then uh, our friends at Legendary Whitetails really helped us kind of keep it keep it afloat there at the beginning and um you know, we really, really very, very thankful for that. You know, they helped us out a ton and I guess they were kind of the first people to jump on board and really support us. And we were able to keep things going throughout the spring. And, and now, you know, we don't have to do, or we're, you know, we're able to focus more on kind of the hunting side of the production business. And we do a lot of, 
um, you know, stuff within the hunting industry. We do small projects for people, um, different hunting brands and stuff like that. And, and that's how, you know, one of the ways that we're staying afloat, but yeah, just, I guess gained just enough traction that we were able to kind of go full time into focusing on hunting videos and, you know, our main mission with starting all this was we just really wanted to have videos that were relatable and our main, I guess, mission is to help get more people interested in hunting, get them, you know, or get, help people feel confident in um, hunting public land, you know, showing people that, hey, there is options out there if you don't have a lease or if you don't have a farm or, you know, if you can't afford those things or, you know, if you don't have permission or know somebody, whatever the case may be, we're just, we really, really, really want more people to get into the sport, get excited about doing it. Um, you know, we just don't want the hunting, the population of hunters to keep decreasing. You know, it's to us, we feel it's an issue and we want to get people excited about it, get people back out in the woods and, you know, have some fun along the way. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are doing it. And I gotta, I gotta give you mad props for, you know, taking that leap. I, I know what that's like. I know that's scary and trying to yeah. make it work on your own that's that's no easy task so um well yeah. done on making it the first through the first year and it seems like you guys got lots of momentum so i'm sure it's going to continue but i'm excited for you guys yeah thanks it was yeah like you said it was a pretty it was pretty scary you know it, it uh well i guess when we first decided we were going to do it it was like well like you know here we go we may just <laughs> may just end up like doing something completely different in, you know, a couple of months, but you know, at, at least we, we've got some goals and we just went for it and glad we did. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And glad it worked out. Uh, and you speaking of those early months, that brings me to the next thing I really want to talk about, which was Nebraska, because you guys took off last year, right when you started this whole thing and you headed out to Nebraska for this public land hunt. And that was really the first, set of videos I think that you guys started putting out there. Um, you went back yeah. to the same place again this year. Both of those mm -hmm. hunts looked like they went really well. I yeah. I would love to hear more about how that went uh, this year and then maybe probably last year too. I'm interested in both of them. And Dan, you'll be, you'll be interested to know this is kind of out in that neck of the woods that you really love in Nebraska. So I think uh, if you haven't seen these videos they're putting out, you should check it out because it's right up your alley with those big rolling grassy hills and looks like beautiful oh, yeah. country, oh, yeah. isn't it, Zach? Oh, yeah. The Nebraska sand hills are pretty pretty vast. I mean, there's a lot of land, and, and, and fortunately there's a lot of public land given, you know, people that anything from – fishermen to bird hunters and deer or you know mule deer hunters whitetail hunters there's all kinds of wildlife out there it's a pretty incredible area it sure looks like it so so walk us through how how you ended up putting together some success i guess let's let's talk last year first because i'm kind of interested in this progression yeah. now that you've had last year what you learned from it how that led to this year um, I've, I've watched those videos and, and got to see how you put it together, but I'd be curious to hear what your thought process was throughout those, those days. Yeah. Well, so the, I guess the first trip is actually pretty funny. It was the first videos that we produced, but we definitely like at this point and us, like we were basically just jobless. Like we didn't, we, we didn't really have any expectation 
totally yet of what we were doing. We just like knew we wanted to try to, you know, make, make a living filming and editing, you know, using our, our talents of filming and editing. So again, we didn't really like, we wanted to make hunting videos, but we didn't really know. So we had, we just took Aaron's camera that he'd bought uh, years ago. We just went for it, Jake, Brody and I, and we, I guess essentially just started looking at maps a few days before we went, uh, picked out a campsite and just drove out there. We drove out there. Oh, I want to say it was around the 13th or 14th. Um, I think it was, yeah, one of those two days we drove out there, drove through the night, got there very early in the morning, slept for about an hour. And then I woke up and saw the sand hills for the first time and was just totally blown away. And, you know, I guess by looking at maps beforehand, and, and Jake Jake has, had actually hunted there um, in the late season before, so he had an idea of, you know, what the area looked like. We had picked out several places on a map and, you know, places that we wanted to check out. We got there and just started observing these areas that, you know, we had suspected to be the best whitetail habitat. And pretty quickly we eliminated a lot of stuff just by you know simply not observing deer coming out of the areas we thought they were going to be in and we also just kind of got a little frustrated with that observing and what we started doing was we'd see an area that you know seemed like bedding habitat like we'd seen deer and very similar stuff and we would just go in and we would still hunt it and in the morning specifically and we would be still hunting and, and working back with those deer as they were coming back into the bedding areas. And we ran into some deer doing that. And we also got our best information by doing that. We would just go right through these bedding areas and we were looking for buck sign. You know, that time of the year, the deer have just shed. If you find a fresh rub right now, like you better be thinking about that. I guess in my opinion, at least like that's the best sign to find bucks. And, and I don't run, I, I guess I shouldn't say I don't run them. My, my, my friends do, and I use their information, but I don't run trail cameras. I just like to run off sign, and that's something I'll probably talk about a lot. Um, is just looking at sign, looking at fresh sign, looking at big tracks, rubs, beds, you know, all the scrapes, all kinds of deer sign, just really looking at that and trying to decipher that and then trying to make a plan to set up on it, and that's what we were doing. We'd go in and more than anything, just looking for rubs and big beds and did that. And we had a lot of, you know, or, or we'd find an area that we had a lot of confidence in and we'd go back in there and we'd hunt it. And our whole strategy would be basically get in there and get set up right on top of beds and hope that they came right back into them. And we had some encounters, but then finally, well, I guess let me take one, one quick step back. The other thing that we would do we would literally go through and do like deer drives or we call them wind bumps where we'd pick a bedding area and what I, I would, and Brody and I both had tags and he, cause he hunted cause he was, he was an Iowa resident, but his brothers that lived, lived in Nebraska. So he'd go back and hunt in Nebraska. So we both had tags, but when we would go into these wind bumps, I would bump, out these areas and I would just go through them, let my wind drift through the bedding area. The deer would bump out in front of me and I would just basically be scouting my way through these, these spots. And 
pretty pretty far into the trip. Um, Before you go any further, Zach, sorry. It, can you yeah. can you elaborate on the wind bumping? So why you're doing it that way, and what you're what you're trying to achieve with that? Well, there's two two main things that we were trying to learn and achieve. I mean, for one, we straight up trying to get a deer. Like we've had it work in the past, um, where you know a deer comes out of the bedding area and offers you know the guy set up a shot. A lot of times, the guy's just sitting on the backside of a bedding area on a funnel and hoping that the deer escape calmly, you know, by letting our scent drift in there, generally the deer escape quite a bit calmer than if you walk through, you know, making a bunch of noise, like a traditional deer drive. You know, I'm basically still hunting through these bedding areas, just letting my scent go, you know, kind of opposite of what you would normally have. Generally still hunting, you know, you're going to have a wind in your face or a crosswind. And in this situation, I'm just going through this bedding area, more or less scouting with the wind at my back. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, goal number one is simply shoot a deer and having a strategy, you know, just it's an off the wall strategy. It's totally different than most, most people are going into a bow hunting approach, (laughs) I guess. But the other thing was, is just trying to find that sign, you know, like unless we were going into these bedding areas, we didn't know. I mean, they're so thick. They're so dense that like, these bucks, if they don't leave and go out into the open, you never know they're there unless you get in there and you either bump them or just scout around enough to where you're finding the sign coming out of these bedding areas. I mean, you got to get close because they're not, they're not moving a lot that time of the year. They're very, very small areas. So we went into this wind bump one day and like I said, it was pretty far along in the, in the trip and I bumped a buck and I watched him run out of the bedding area the wrong way. He wasn't going towards Jake and Brody, but I watched him go up over the hill and I was like, Ooh, like that's a, that's a nice one. We've been seeing, there's not a, not a super old age class out there. So to see real nice eight pointer run up over the hill, I was like, like, we really need to think about this and see if we can, you know, figure out how to hunt it. So I continued to just scout that whole thing. And it wasn't a super big piece, maybe 10, 15 acres, Um, but just a super dense piece of habitat. There was all different types of vegetation in there and there were tons of, you know, basically just a a bedding area and a food source all in one. And there was tons and tons of beds and tons and tons of rubs in there. Found some scrapes as well. And I was like, you know, this is something again, that we really need to think about and hopefully he'll come back. But, you know, I was like, it's, it's such a good bedding area in here. So many deer are using it. We did, I did jump other, um, I did jump other deer out of there, some does, but it's like, even if he doesn't come back, the one that I just jumped, surely another buck will be back in here in the next few days, at least before we leave. So I did I scouted the whole thing, almost every inch of it in that, in that day that I wind bumped after I bumped that buck, I tried to figure it out, left my scent all over the place in there. I mean, was laying in the beds, was seeing what they could see, was scouting it right you know, right in the middle of the trip. So we waited a couple of days and we went in there, hunted it one day. Um, and then wait, like I said, waited a couple of days, hunted it, saw, saw most of the deer that we, I jumped out of there, come back except for that buck. And then we hunted it again the next morning, which I think would have been like three days out from when I went through it and wind bumping and scouting. And, right at first light heard a deer come in 
walked right around us and it was only about 30 yards away but we couldn't see because it was so thick in there heard it bed down and about eight o'clock 8 30 maybe the wind started picking up when that wind picked up he got up and he shifted his bed then he walked to like 10 yards in front of the stand and it was the same buck that i jumped out of there just a few days earlier he walked to 10 yards and he was browsing had no idea we were in the world and i just had a perfect shot at him and you know it that was uh kind of an eye-opener for me and i talked to a lot of people about it since and you know, found that a lot of people also use somewhat of a similar strategy it may not be directly trying to bump the deer but at the same time you know there are other guys that are doing stuff like that and i really got me thinking a lot um just about you know how how you come across the best stuff and and you know what i kind of came down to is you know you're looking for that fresh sign that sign that is being laid down right now you know and i think sometimes guys will get and myself included for sure i mean I'm, I'm, my goal is to not do this as much as possible this year it's like i get i get super fired up about a spot that i found in like february right like mm-hmm. i'm out looking for sheds and trying to find you know find the best deer sign well what you're finding then is you're finding a whole year's worth of sign and it's sometimes hard to decipher okay is that made in october is that made in september is that made in december i mean who not i mean it's hard to tell and i think that i went in and wasted a lot of sits because i was hunting sign that i saw in february that wasn't actually laid down in the time that i thought that it was like you know i'm like oh this is going to be awesome on november 4th well you get in there and the sign's dry i mean the deer were in there in october you're a month late or you're two months late you know maybe it's september when they first shed you know and i think kind of doing that style of hunting and being mobile and doing kind of off the wall type stuff allows you to find that hot sign and in reality you know, when you find those best areas where the highest concentrations of deer are, like, the deer aren't just going to leave. I mean, I think that, you know, and I've had the argument, too, of, like, oh, in more pressured states, you know, than than Iowa, for example, those deer aren't going to come back. Well, I don't agree with that, because if if you find the place where they all want to be, I mean, I hunted, I grew up hunting western Ohio, like, there's more pressure there than, you know, than anywhere else I've been to this point for whitetails. And there's small woodlots where people would go in and hunt. You know, yeah, they'll bump them out of bedding areas and they may be gone for a couple of days. But if you find that best spot, like, there's nowhere if there's nowhere better. Like, they're, they're going to come back to it because it has all the factors that they need. You know, they may leave for a few days or something or maybe even a week. But at some point, you know, if all the deer feel comfortable there, if it's a pretty well set up bedding area with all the factors that they need and good escape routes and they're going to come back now and sometimes you know it just takes a little bit of weird tactics to find that yeah now would you agree with this though that going about it in that kind of way it's it's high risk high reward right so mm-hmm. you you definitely mm-hmm. could have that like you said you might bump them out of there for a few days or you might get a buck that maybe he's going to stick around there but he's just not going to move during daylight he might be back to that bed well before 
daylight in the morning, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of people yeah. that are probably listening to this and they're like, oh, that's crazy. I'm never going to do that because, you know, you're supposed to have this sanctuary and you leave these deer untouched, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. Would you would you say that if you're hunting, if you've got like one little spot that you can hunt, you've got your 20-acre property at home and that's the one spot you hunt, maybe you don't want to go in there and do this kind of thing all the time because you're going to blow it out. But if you're in a situation right. like you're at where you're on public land, you're just there seven days. So it's, you got nothing to lose cause you need to get it done now. Mm-hmm. Or right. I feel like what you've got going on in Iowa is you guys are really aggressive, but you have lots and lots and lots of different spots. Same thing with like Dan Infall. He's no, super aggressive, sure. but if you blow out spot a, mm-hmm. that's fine. Cause I'm going to spot B and then spot C and D sure. E F G I mean, is that the right way to think about this? No, it is 100%. I guess I maybe should have said that beforehand. Um, and and I guess I've uh, I've always been this way. Even you know, as soon as I got my driver's license, I was going to go to a place that I was going to get away from Western Ohio, like to where I had had that option. Um, it has. It, I guess if you're going to hunt aggressively, I think that. You have to put yourself in a situation where now, whether it's hunting public or private, you know, maybe you've got multiple different pieces of private land and and some public mixed in or all public or just a ton of pieces of private land. You have to have multiple different areas that you can go to. You have to be able to balance. And that's, that's the key. Um, you know, we, we do these aggressive tactics and, but like you said, we've got, so many places that we'll never touch in a, in a season that we've scouted in the past and we've got you know ideas of how we would hunt it but there's just not simply not enough time for it and i think that if you're going to hunt aggressively like this then you should have lots of different options and i think that there's ways to hunt aggressively like this with not as many options as you know maybe we have or or even your your buddy has but you know, I think that at some point throughout the season, you know, it is always worth getting aggressive. Um, I just, if there's one pet peeve I have, it's just people being like, ah, I got to wait or I got to, oh, you know, the wind is just not perfect. Well, sometimes you got to get in there when it's, when it's the time is right. And I, it, it, I guess it just, I think that people, uh, and, and again, like myself included, like I, I think all this because of like all the times that I just, thought I was being careful but in reality I was just like just getting in such a rut that the deer were patterning me I wasn't Mm -hmm. changing it up enough yeah so quick question here you know on top of being aggressive there's like whether you're aggressive or you're conservative in your approach to actually going after a deer there's still some preparation that has to happen on the front end of of that you know and what that sounds like you're doing is this scouting at a very high and fast level to locate the animal break mm-hmm. break that break that down for us and kind of tell us what what that scouting that speed scouting is like for you guys yeah so um i guess i guess when we go into an area we really try to focus on set like again setting up on that that hot sign or finding that hot sign and I always my best way to explain like what exactly we're looking for is is the highest concentration of 
the best sign in that area. So you've got an idea of what your deer density is like in, in the um, properties that you hunt. And you know what, when you, you know, you know what it looks like when there's a bunch of bucks in an area, you know, you kind of have that idea of how many rubs, you know, per acre there are, or how many scrapes per acre there are. Like when you, when you, when, when you're looking for that hot sign, when it really jumps out at you of like, holy cow, like there's scrapes, there's rubs, there's tracks, there's bucks, there's does, there's all the deer kind of, you know, getting, they're all just kind of in this small area. You kind of, you know, you know the difference of that versus, you know, a little bit of size. Does that make sense? Like, like all of a sudden for that area, for that deer density, like there's max sign. Yeah. And when you find that, it's just like, whoa, you know, it almost smells like buck in there. <laughs> like there's mm-hmm. the scrapes, there's rubs, beds. And that's, that's what, you know, we're really looking for is that highest concentration of deer sign. And, you know, so again, how long, thinking, how long are you in that area until you end up bailing and going to the next spot? Um, it really depends. Um, I would say if it looks really good, you know, we'll get in there and we kind of ease our way. Like, for example, a lot of times they have a bedding area that we've previously scouted in mind. So, you know, we know there's a good, you know, bedding area deep in this piece of public, or maybe there's two or three along the way. And as we're scouting through there, we're just kind of hitting the, the downwind side of that bedding area, just kind of skirting the outskirts of it, looking for good sign coming out of it. If we hit it at the first one, then, you know, we'll set up there for the day. And then if, we, but if we don't hit it on the first one, we'll go to the next one. And, you know, it just gives kind of a, sometimes it's a day-to-day thing. Sometimes it's a, in one hunt, you may cover two or three bedding areas, just trying to find the right one that's got that sign. Um, sometimes we'll sit on the same bedding area, you know, for multiple days. It's something um, we haven't done a ton of in the past. You know, some of the bucks that we've shot in the past few years have been, um, you know, kind of hunting a bedding area repetitively until, you know, the buck gives you the right opportunity. But a lot of it are, a lot of the bucks we've shot the past few years have been, uh, first time sits, but something that I'm a little bit more interested in is just like seeing how much we can get away with and like how much it actually takes to drive deer out of an area. Like yeah. this year, I'd like to try to focus on one or a couple bedding areas or a general spot you know for three four or five days at a time and just see you know just kind of push it a little bit and see what happens just try to learn something from that yeah but i guess again just day to day spot to spot now now when you're you're doing this in-season scouting you're walking along you find one of these bedding areas where you're seeing that hot sign you're seeing a lot that the concentration is right it's a yeah this is going to be a spot we need to hit now Walk me through the thought process from that moment on. Like, what are you looking for to help determine, okay, where do we need to set up? How do we think they're going to come out of here? Um, what's what's that next step from, okay, yeah, this is the right area to finding that perfect spot within the spot that you're going to actually sit and how you approach that? Yeah, so um, I can actually use an example from Nebraska from this season, which is actually ends up being where I um, ended up getting the buck um, this year, the first day we went in there, there was a piece that was, there's a road that went through the middle of it. That was just 
public access. Like you could park at multiple different pull-offs down this road, but it was just this sand road that went through the piece. And we ended up driving down that road and just trying to get a feel for the habitat. And we jumped a couple bucks and one of them was the one I ended up killing, but we were like, that's a big one. Like that's the biggest one we've seen the whole trip. And we kind of freaked out and ended up going back, turning around, going back to the first pull off and then going back right back after him. Like they had just jumped out of that bedding area, but we suspected they weren't going to go far and they would probably come right back, you know, just, just running away from, from the vehicle. We didn't figure that they would leave the County, you know? So how we approached that is like, this is a little bit different situation. Like we didn't find the sign, but, but we knew they were in there. So how we went about approaching it is like, we just kind of got to a high point. So where we could see that bedding area and we could see kind of how the land laid. And from that, Logan and I, the guy that I was with, we just were glassing that whole area and we're looking for just little terrain features that in, in ways that, you know, just little mini funnels you know, just where we would expect trails to kind of go through this piece of land through this little creek bottom. And we just kind of kept getting to different high points and looking at it from different angles. And then we eventually were like, okay, this is the best funnel. We're right on this point of the creek. Ended up getting down there, and one of the two bucks that we jumped was ended up coming right down one of those trails, and he caught our wind before we got a, a good shot at him. But, you know, essentially the plan worked he was coming right down the place, right down the pipe, right where we expected him to. Um, just the wind, wind kind of messed us up, but well, totally messed us up. But you know, that was, that's one example is just kind of getting a feel by looking at it. Okay. You know, how does that terrain lay? And just from past experiences, you know, you get pretty good idea of how deer are going to work through a Creek bottom. But I guess in a different situation, if I was walking through an area, scouting it, um, like, like the one I shot in Nebraska last year, it's like I'm in that area I'm seeing all that sign. I'm looking at how the trails are oriented in there, looking at how the beds are oriented thinking about which wind those deer bedding there on. And, you know, in that situation with the one I shot last year in Nebraska, a lot of those beds were set up for South wind. They were kind of cover it back facing to the north so with that south wind they've got cover behind them wind coming you know at their back and they're looking mm-hmm. out into an open area so with that kind of info um that's how we decided to hunt it and, and that's the wind that he was in there on and we ended up getting him you know it's just a lot of different factors i i'm real sometimes i'm bad at i guess putting like thinking of all of the situations because it's always so different you know sometimes you're just walking through an area and you're like all right you know up on this ridge in you know in big timber um you know maybe the side hill has a you know where there's a bench and maybe there's an old you know clear cut down there well there's a hard transition line there and right off the hard transition transition line there's just tons of you know heavily used scrapes it's like well you know those bucks are working that transition line they're scraping down along through there and that's as simple as it is like you hit that that scrape line you're like okay we need to back out of here and you know come back on a time when we feel like we're going to hunt these scrapes or maybe you hunt it that day you know every situation just varies so much but you know our main mission is to be right 
where, you know, the most hot sign kind of comes together. Yeah. You just mentioned something I was going to, I was kind of curious about your opinion on, which is the, the question right there. You find the sign, do you hunt right away? Or do you say, well, I got to give it a few days to rest because I just came in here. Maybe you hung a stand or whatever it might be. I've always kind of been yeah. in mind that you should hunt it right then and there because maybe you can get them coming back the one time that they don't know something was there. But what's what's your take on that? Um, it, again, it varies. I, I'm kind of the same way that you just said. Like, I like to get aggressive. Like, I like I like to try to break all the rules. You know what I mean? Like, I like to um, wind bump it and then go set up on a, you know, that day, uh, you know, whatever, like just do something weird and just try something different. But a lot of times I would say if, if you, it depends on how much impact you feel like you've got, you know, if you just kind of get into the edge of it and you're still down, downwind of all the bedding or where you think the majority of the deer are and you pick up on a real hot scrape right on the edge of a bed, uh, you know, a transition line, that you think a buck's going to show up there in daylight, you know, hunt it right then. Just hang a stand up and hunt it or set up on the ground, whatever you want to do. Um, but if you go through a whole bedding area, you're bumping deer, you know, there's a high impact. You're leaving your scent all over in the middle of the bedding area. A lot of times I'll, in that situation, give it like generally two days. So, you know, just saying, let's say on November 6th, we go blow up the world in a bedding area, but we're like that, that's the hot stuff like that's the best stuff we've seen in the past week then maybe on like november 9th we would go back in there on the wind that we felt was right and hope for the best yep. you know it just depends on how much that impact how much you feel that impact is going to throw the deer off yeah i follow you so so continue with the that nebraska situation here this year <laughs> you found these bucks you moved in there you had the one catch your wind what was your plan from there on out? So there was another little factor in there that I haven't included yet. There were some other guys who have actually just just got a hold of me. They they just messaged me today and thought that was pretty cool. Kind of got to figure out what you know what they were doing a little bit more and what we were doing and just kind of communicate a little bit better. But nice. there was these other guys that were hunting in there and they were going way back deeper into the into the piece of public so they were driving past this bedding right past this bedding area that we were hunting and the reason that we found these deer is because we drove past the bedding area and they jumped up so when we were making that first move that first night they came down that road and logan who was with me ran up there and asked you know if they would um if they would just like hold off or at least just park at the first pull off and not you know, go past them because we knew that they were in there and very, very kindly of them. They were like, yeah, go for it, make a move on them. And, and, uh, you know, we'll just hold off for the evening. So that we're super thankful for that. Super, super cool of them to do that and ended up making that move. But we knew that those guys were hunting back there so that they were driving past that, that bedding area a lot. And, you know, at least, four times a day and we waited a couple days I guess we hunted it that next morning and didn't see much so you know we we went through that that whole ordeal where we all we jumped them almost got the one and then the next morning we hunted it but n nothing really came back into that bedding area so 
we gave it a couple days, I think two full days. And we went in there on the fifth day of season. I guess it had been two and a half days, something like that. doesn't really matter. About two days. Went back in there on the fifth day of season in the afternoon. And we pulled in. And I was like, ah, oh, man, like, looks like there's been people back in here. And, that, you know, there's tracks on the sand and vehicle tracks. And we were like, well, let's try it anyway. You know, we got to know. Just got to at least at least mark it off that, you know, they're, they've moved on and they've moved to a different bedding area. And walked back, got about halfway back there and saw where those tire tracks had actually stopped and turned around. Well, it must have been somebody, it must have been somebody else other than those guys because I now know that they had left after day three. So they hadn't been back there for a couple days either. So get back there and all of a sudden it goes from fresh tire tracks on the sand access road to like nothing but deer tracks on top of old tire tracks. I'm like, okay, we might be in business here. And we crept up to the very spot where we turned around and and those deer jumped up that first day. I crawled up and I decided that I was going to just look into that bedding area and glass down there until I saw a deer moving. And if I knew a deer was down in there, at least just even one, even just a flicker of a tail, that was going to be enough for us to kind of make a play on him and get to a setup. I didn't want to, I didn't want to go right back into it and like waste, I guess waste a whole hunt if I didn't think that there were deer in there. So I decided I would sit there for an hour, glass right into that bedding area, kind of had a pretty good vantage to where I could see down into it. And that was, that was my whole plan was look at it for an hour. If it's no good, we're just going to keep moving and try to figure out where they've moved to. So I'm laying there glassing with my binos just down into this bedding area. I'm not very far from it. I'm only, you know, oh, probably 60 yards from the edge of it. But I just, had, you know, had the wind right, and I was just peeking over from a high point and looking down in there. Wasn't seeing anything. Was kind of starting to get a little bit discouraged, and all of a sudden I looked down, and that big one was laying there 70 yards from me looking the other way the whole time he was there and the whole yeah he was there the whole time wow he was just bedded and uh i was like no no way i'm looking at that right i'm like there's no way and his ear flicked and i was like you gotta be kidding me (laughs) like he's he's 70 yards from me like has no idea and and logan's kind of back behind me hiding a little bit more peek back over and I like give him the signal like buck bedded you know he crawls up to me and I show him where the buck is and he sees it he starts filming and I I knew that there was no way that we were both going to be able to get down in there like you know we were already close and now granted we could have I guess I guess a million things went through my head in like a pretty short period of time because I didn't want to wait around too long like either got to go for this thing right now in his bed or we're going to have to loop around and try to set up on a spot where he's going to, uh, you know, maybe walk past. But now you're talking, if you go set up, now you're talking about he can go just about any direction, you know, if he gets up out of that bed. Now we could have got really, really close and put our odds pretty high, but it's like, 
we know literally right where he's at right now. So I just kind of studied, you know, how the wind was playing through the creek bottom, looked at, you know, as best I could tell the way his body was oriented in that bed. And I started kind of making plans of, okay, how can I approach this to where he's not going to see me or smell me or hear me coming? And I knew Logan would be able to film him from up on top there where I'd spotted him from. So I was like, <laughs> I was like, all right, you see that cedar right there? That's where I'm going to try to get to. I'd ranged him, the buck, and he was at 70, and that cedar was at 55. So I thought if I can get to that cedar, it looks like I'll have an opening, and it looks like he'll be broadside to, to that spot that I'm going to get to. So for like the next hour and a half, I just crawled. And I mean, just painful. Probably about two hours, actually. And only, you know, maybe a grand total of, you know, 40-some yards. Well, I've been a little bit further than that, about 50 yards. And I crawled, and I crawled, and I crawled. And I was like, just every time the wind would blow, I'd pick my bow up, and I'd just mass grass down in front of me. And I was on... um I would just kind of try to follow any tiny little low spot I could get to. I mean, just being super meticulous about every little thing that I did because it's like I just don't want to spook him. You know, at the very least, I don't want to spook him and blow him out of here because, like, we now know that he's been in here twice and, like, we got a really good chance. But I also thought I had a really good chance if I could get up to that theater that I'd actually be able to get shot. So after, like, two hours, somewhere between an hour and a half, two hours, I – eventually get to that cedar and I just barely peek up at Logan and he's still filming that spot. And I'm like, well, he must still be there. So I peek around the right side of the cedar. And I'm like, oh, the gun, I don't see him over there. I'm glassing down there. I thought maybe, maybe now that I'm lower, I can't see, you know, quite as well as I could from that vantage. I looked and looked and looked and finally I was like, well, I'm gonna have to try to get to the other side of the tree. So I crawled around to the side of the tree. I mean, just painfully slow. And as soon as I poked my head around, I was like, yep, right there he is. And I mean, <laughs> he's close. <laughs> and I, I hit him with the range, and he's still looking the other way, that is. Wow. And I hit him with the range finder. 19 yards, hit it again. 19, hit it again. 19. I was like, good enough. <laughs> so, I, so I put my release on. Well, a bunch of sand stuck in my release. I started panicking because I couldn't get my release open. So I got that figured out. And right as that happened, the other buck that we almost got a few nights prior stands up out of his bed and starts grunting, walking towards the big one. And, I, and this is all while I can't get my release open, which I did, like I said, get figured out. But finally get my release on this little buck, well, you know, buck, uh, the other buck. I don't want to say little buck because I would have shot him a couple I would have shot him any other day. He's walking right at the bigger one, grunting, and he walks right up to him. And the whole time the big buck is just like, totally disregarding him he's like totally ignoring him and i'm just got my my mindset on this hole i know he's going to be broadside when he stands up i know that his vitals should be exposed in this you know <laughs> perfect little hole right there about the size of a basketball and i'm just focusing on that spot not moving that little buck walks to like 10 yards from me and is looking at Logan, can see Logan on top of the hill, can't tell what he is, starts kind of seeing me. This all took probably 10, 15 minutes. And he's looking at me, looking at Logan, stomps a little bit, 
eventually just gives up on it because he can't figure it out. We're both wearing ghillie suits. And he just kind of walks around that buck, walks right up to him, puts his head on right into the bed, and then eventually just walked away. And I was like, I cannot believe he didn't get up. Like, I thought for sure that that little buck would at least make him stand up for a yeah. second. And I was like, well, maybe, you know, I really hated if he, you know, got to till dark and, you know, this buck never stands up. But anyway, I keep sitting there and I'm just focusing on the spot. And I finally, like, stupid, it was it almost cost me. I looked back at Logan just to make sure that he wasn't, like, you know, having camera issues or anything, making sure that he wasn't, like, calling me off or anything. And I look at him, everything looks good. And as I look back, he's starting to stand up. And I was like, oh, no, like, as soon as he moved, I wanted to be drawing. Like, I almost messed up. And he just stood up, and he looked right in my direction. I mean, he was facing me, or he was broadside, but he was, you know, his head was looking at me. And I was just like, well, it's now or never. Like, if he takes one step, he's out of that hole. And I just drew back, put it on him, shot him. <laughs> wow. And, and uh, yeah, Dude. double lunged him, and pretty weird, pretty weird story, like, I mean, I won't dive into it too much. I'm, I'm sure there'll be plenty included in the video if anybody's interested, I guess. But it hit him in both lungs, and he he bedded three times. We bumped him once. He bedded three times and went, like, almost 400 yards. And it hit wow. him square, like, 10 ring right behind the shoulder. Weirdest thing I've ever seen. Very, very weird. We could, But we could talk about that for a long time, I guess. But <laughs> it was wild. Uh, yeah. I'll tell you, you're a wild man, dude. Going in there like that, gilly suiting it, crawling for hundreds of yards into there. I, I gotta wonder. You, you said that you said that this video of the final hunt is 45 minutes long. Is it just 45 minutes of you crawling the entire time? <laughs> <laughs> I hope it is. <laughs> no, but it, <laughs> no, but I'm sure there'll be plenty of that. I'm sure it'll be pretty funny. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it uh it was you know it's just one of those deals you know it's like i know he's right there like i hate i hate leaving deer like not getting as close to where they are as possible when you know exactly like their exact coordinates you yeah. know you it's couldn't like, ask for better i just intel. think yeah yeah i just always think it's silly like um <laughs> had a lot of people be like yeah i saw a big one and watch him bed down and you know we're gonna have to go after him a couple in a couple days when we get the right wind it's like you watched him bed down and you left you know or like you watched him go into a bedding area and you left it's like that's, you know he's there you know if you know right where he's at like just hunt that spot and i guess you know that's kind of what i was what i was thinking about is like it's like i know i know i'm gonna be mad if i don't try it you know i gotta at least try it yeah. And, you know, it was pretty painful. Like, it, like I got all kinds of weird stuff still stuck in my body from that crawl. Like, there's cactus <laughs> out there, sand burrs, like, you know, whatever else is laying out there on the sand hills. And, like, I still got some pretty weird, weird stuff on me, but it was well worth it. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Uh, <laughs> Dan, what are, you, what are you thinking about all this? I think uh, I need to hunt more out of state and buy a ghillie suit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I think buying a ghillie suit is well, just having having that option has really changed my whole perspective on hunting. Um 
you know, I'm pretty, pretty wired guy. Like I'm drink a lot of coffee, you know, I'm pretty <laughs> excited. I see a lot of jumping around and I'm pretty antsy, you know, and <laughs> I'm not a fan guy, you know, like I, it, it just doesn't work for my personality very well. Like I don't like to sit like the guys that can sit all day during the rut, like have so much respect for that because like, I cannot do it. I can't sit for like, it, it, like that sounds, it's just the thought of it is horrible to me to sit all day <laughs> in, in one stand. I don't, I mean, I've done it a lot, but I don't like it. Yeah, it's pretty Put brutal. It that way. Uh, Dan, this might yeah. be like a revolutionary idea for you, Dan, because cause Dan has got these bad knees because of how old he is. So oh, you bastard. <laughs> he's, he's, he's not able to do those all-day rut sits either, so maybe this is the key. <laughs> maybe you need this uh, ghillie suit tactic. Um, yeah, my luck, I'd just fall asleep in the grass. <laughs> yeah, hey. Oh, I do plenty of that, man. No doubt, <laughs> falling asleep in the grass a lot. So you you gotta you gotta tell us more though about what you're how you're pulling off these ground stalks and everything because I know you did this in Iowa last year too. Um, talk yep. to us a little bit about just the things that you're thinking about to make that work. How you going about the still hunting deal? Um, how the ghillie suits helping you? Anything else like that? But first, let's take our last break of the day to thank our friends at Whitetail Properties and. Whitetail Properties just launched a new video on their YouTube channel in that Land Beat YouTube series that I've been talking about. And this one's pretty interesting. It's called Broadhead Myths Debunked. And it goes through, talks to an archery expert who walks us through how he went and tested all the broadheads on the market to see which one flew the best, which were the most consistent, what are the best broadheads to use out there. He shares us his results in this video. They are not going to be what you expect. It's kind of a surprise uh, result he's got there. It's very interesting. Highly recommend checking it out, especially if your season hasn't opened yet. You're still trying to figure out what broadheads you're going to shoot this year. You definitely want to check this one out. So head on over to the Whitetail Properties YouTube channel. Check out the Broadhead Myths debunked video. And you can also learn more about what Whitetail Properties has got going on by going to whitetailproperties.com. Yeah, well, I've always had like an interest in hunting on the ground because like I said I've been you know I've just been too impatient to sit tree stand setups for you know a whole season and you know I I really like I, I started watching Whitetail Adrenaline a few years ago and yeah. it was like man like that just looks so fun and like I really really was inspired by you know just something different you know it wasn't you know, and they don't talk a lot about exactly like all their theories and stuff of what, like how they're approaching it. But like, you know, it was like, it's working. And that's really all that I needed to know is like, somebody's out there trying it. And like, I want to try that too, just because, you know, I want to do something different. I don't want to just be limited to tree stands. And I also just like to move around a lot. And, you know, that was kind of the, you know, watching those guys, was the inspiration to just go for it. It's like, okay, somebody's doing it out there. And I, you know, when I first started doing it, I think that, you know, my friends kind of thought that it was stupid and a little crazy. But once we, once we started doing it and we were wearing those ghillie suits, like those deer cannot figure out what's going on. Like never, I don't know... I don't know that in a setup, like where we were actually set up on the ground, the deer's ever spotted us. 
Like they've they've smelled us, but I don't think one's ever actually just picked us off. Now, I've, a million times in my life, I've had deer pick me off in the tree stand, and in high higher pressured areas or higher pressured states, like I'm sure Mark you're dealing with in Michigan or like where I grew up in Western Ohio, like deer are looking for hunters in tree stands. Yeah, and I see that even here in Iowa on public ground. Like if we get a deer to get downwind of us. The first thing that they do is look in the trees and they have no idea where we are. And like, it's been pretty crazy. I mean, that's two guys on the ground hiding in ghillie suits and they cannot figure it out. And they'll be, you know, in easy bow range and they still can't figure out where we're at. And if you think about how a, you know, white, you know, if you've read anything about how white tails can see or, um, you know, just there's, there's a, decent amount of research like you can't see anything but movement very mm-hmm. well and you know with that ghillie suit you're just breaking up that human shape yeah like you don't have the head and shoulders and and that i think is ultimately what you know is kind of is really the the make or break of it is like if they see your head and shoulders they're gone but if they can't see that and, and the ghillie suit just does an incredible job of just you know um, breaking that up. I also have like, I don't know, probably close to a foot long hair. So like that helps break up. The <laughs> That's like the gilly haircut. You got to have that too. <laughs> hey, quick yeah. question. How much does one of those gilly suits cost? Ah, man. You know, I don't really know ours. Uh, the ones that we got, a friend actually gave them to us and they were like, I think if you look for them online, you can find them. I want to say, or yeah, it's bushrag.com. And that's where you can find the exact ones that we're wearing. I don't know how much they cost because we didn't actually buy them. But I want to say that they're relatively inexpensive, like, you know, what you would be spending on a tree stand or something like that. And man, so, those, gotcha. those whitetail adrenaline guys, don't they just make them themselves? Like those are homemade. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I think like like my friend Jake, who works with with us, he um, he's built his own in the past, and his grandma sewed one together for him one time. And you know, when when I was growing up, me and my dad always used leafy suits, um, like especially for turkey hunting. You know, those you know they're basically just have like maple leaves that kind of hang off of them. I think all that stuff will work. Anything really to anything that'll match the color of the habitat that you're in and that's going to break up that head and shoulders is going to work. Um, you know, something, I guess, not to get off the ghillie subject, but kind of, yeah, I want to, I want to do it without a ghillie now. Like I want to just like wear like a solid, like color, like tan or brown and just do it without the ghillie because I think, it's also it's that's still possible too. It's just a lot of it's being aware of your surroundings and like again trying to get that human shape broken up. And I think the ghillie suit makes that super easy. But I think it would be fun to just you know try it without it a couple times, see if see if uh, you know it can be pulled off. I mean, people are doing it for sure. It's just yeah, kind man. of a kind of a fun challenge. I think would be to just kind of go with without even wearing camo just wear like a tan long sleeve shirt or something think it can work 
And like I was saying, the wild card can go try try yeah. in the final. <laughs> dude, I think yeah. I, I agree, dude. I don't think camo is as important as people think it is. Mm-mm. No, I don't. I don't at all. I think. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of different camo patterns that guys are wearing out there, and they're all you know everybody's you know having success with all different types of stuff. Yeah. The biggest thing is is just blending with your surroundings as best as you can. And I think sometimes, I mean, like a lot of people's grandpas hunted in like red flannels. I mean, my grandpa hunted and his hunting clothes were red, was like a red flannel and like, you know, bib, like tan bibs. You know, that's both my grandpas hunted in that stuff for years. You know, now they wear camo, but you know, for years and years, that's, that's what people hunted in. And like, you know that the color red or or you know hundred orange. You know, so I think sometimes people are like, "Oh, you can never wear that." Well, they don't see color like we see color. I mean, I don't. I'm no expert on that by any means, but like obviously they don't, or they'd be running from every guy that was wearing hundred orange during gun season just nonstop. I mean, they never yeah. stop running. But it's uh, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's quite as important as some people I th- make it out to be. It's just, I th- Blending with your surroundings is so. Yeah, I think Dan, what you need to do is just get a full blue suit, all blue, and if you do that, um, I think that's going to be the ticket to your success, Dan. <laughs> they'll uh, yeah. they'll put me up there with the greats, then, right? Yes, they would if you could pull it <laughs> off, because <laughs> that's actually that's like the one color that really does pop to whitetails, while orange and red right. blends in gray. Blue would be the toughest. So if you if if you end up getting to kill a buck wearing like tan solid stuff, Zach. Then yeah, then you really do need to try blue. That'll be like the final test if you can really, really <laughs> fool them. That'd or with a headlamp on. Hey, I yeah, I've read, I've read that, I've read that uh, that thing about the blue. So you never know. Wild card out here. Who yeah, knows? breaking rules. <laughs> um, <laughs> so so you uh you're wearing the ghillie suit. You're stalking on these deer. Do you are you gonna go and use this kind of tactic on any day? Or, or is it, are you waiting for certain conditions? Like, do you just use this when it's nice and windy or rainy or something like that to break up your sound? Or what about that? That's actually, yeah, that's a really good question. I, I would prefer, uh, I would prefer probably like rainy, windy days in November. You know, that's when it's the easiest to just like sneak up on a buck, just being silly. Um, but at the same time, I always, I always say. Pick the one factor that you can take and use to your advantage. Now, some days, I'll use a couple examples here. Some days, you know, a lot of people would say that you would never want to do it on a still, crisp morning. I love still, crisp mornings because I can just hear so much. But that's the one factor that I'm taking away. I can't cover as much ground, you know, or I can't maybe go barreling into a spot quite like I can on, you know, the, the wet, windy day. But if it's cold and crisp and and not much wind, like you can just hear a deer coming way before they can hear you if you're going slow enough. You just got to change that cadence up. If you've got a, um, oh, let's say a, a day where it's super, it's super windy and hot, you know, you're going to just, your strategy again is going to change. If it's super windy, you can move super fast. So you can just bounce around to these different areas. 
um, you know, there's tons and tons of, I guess, different variations and weather conditions, but, you know, I like to just pick that one thing that I guess that one thing that you can, as a, as a hunter can focus on beating the deer at. So whether that's sight or sound, you, there's generally something you can pull from any weather condition and just use that to your advantage. That makes sense. Now, what yeah. about your basic, uh, you mentioned that your cadence, how you're slowing it down in certain conditions, speeding it up in others. You know, I feel like, like you did in Nebraska this year and, and kind of talked about in the past, you're kind of going into a new area and you're, you're half scouting, half hunting, walking on the ground like that. Mm -hmm. Can you, you talked about what you're looking for from the scouting standpoint, but from the hunting standpoint, you know, how fast are you typically going? How, I mean, are you, are you stopping every five yards and glassing or you cover more ground or kind of what does the actual process look like for you to make this work? Well, there's, there's two different, there's two different, uh, totally different type of cadence. Like, well, I guess there's tons of variation. I guess that's stupid to say, but there's two <laughs> major differences. There's like the slow one and then there's the fast one. And like the fast one is like generally just getting to a spot. And honestly, the fast one has produced buck sightings just as much as the slow one. And what's going on there, I think a lot of times it's like, just going fast, not really caring, like knowing that there's a good chance that we're going to bump into something. But sometimes I'm kind of purposely doing that, like kind of going a little too fast because if there's one around, I want to know. I want to see him jump up and run, or I want to see him stand up and try to figure out what's going on. And my friend Sean and I were on a hunt last year where we were doing pretty much exactly that. We were, we were planning on going way deeper into this piece of public. And you know, we were moving pretty quick down – and we we're kind of getting just starting to get into, you know, where there was the best, you know, best bedding habitat, but we were still wanting to go deeper and we were moving pretty quick and a buck heard us. It was one of those windy days. He heard a twig snap and he jumped up and he started looking around and he's like 50 yards away, but he couldn't see us. And like, he heard us, but we saw him before he saw us. And he like, pan you know, he's panicking. He's looking around ended up watching him go right back into that bedding area turned out he's with a doe and we just kind of hung with him right in that area and we almost got him a couple times he was right at about 40 yards we just needed him to come a little bit closer but um you know that i guess that aggressive cadence that faster walking is almost like you know dan infault talks about like bed stacking yeah or, or like stacking up a bedding area it's kind of the same thing right like we're just kind of plowing through or we're not necessarily plowing, but we're just moving fast enough that like if there's deer around, we want them to kind of know, kind of hear us. And then as we start getting towards those areas that we're really thinking about focusing on, we're going to slow down to the point of, you know, if, if you can hear yourself and not hear anything else, you're going too fast. And I, I'm, and again, I'm impatient. I have a, kind of bad habits of getting going a little bit fast but if i notice that i'm doing that just try to you know take a deep breath calm down and just like remember that i'm not necessarily trying to get anywhere i don't have a point b that i need to be at i'm hunting right now and like i have to be more aware of my surroundings and just calm myself down and you know when and sean sean my friend sean farendorf um he, he works for Whitetail Properties now, but we were, he worked at Midwest Whitetail for a little bit. You know, him and I kind of, 
he was kind of the first person to be like, yeah, let's try it. You know, let's try, you know, doing more of this still hunting. And it took, it took some time for us to really figure it out. And he, <laughs> I used to pick on him a lot because he had this tendency of like, all of a sudden he would just be going way too fast. You're like, dude, you got to slow down. Like, just remember, you're not trying to get to anywhere specific. You're just, you're now hunting. You're now looking for sign. You're looking for deer. You're trying to figure out, you know, if I need to set up or just keep going. And I think um, it can vary so much. But back, I guess back to your question, like, do you glass? You know, yeah, a lot of times we're just taking a few steps. And a lot of times we're doing that right on a deer trail. You know, we're just using the deer trail to keep inching closer to where we think that they're spending their time during the daylight. And, you know, you walk a few steps, glass, listen, sometimes stand there for a few minutes, sometimes stand there for 15 minutes. You know, I think if you bump a deer, stand there for 15, 20 minutes, let things calm back down. And you'll find that a lot of times, you know, those deer actually aren't even going that far. Like they may just run up bound 50 yards away and then go right back to what they were doing because they weren't ever actually sure what was actually, you know, really going on that wind's in your face and a deer sees you and you're wearing a ghillie suit and it's like, well, what the heck is that? Yeah. And it just kind of runs out of sight. It's going to forget about you in 20 minutes. I mean, a lot of time. And, you know, there was a couple hunts here in Nebraska that we just had where we, we literally, in this one hunt that we had, we popped up into this kind of overlooking this little bedding area. And I'd seen deer bedded in there, does bedded in there last year. And we got up to the top of the hill, and right as we crested the hill, a fawn came running up out of the bedding area, just totally random. Like, you know how fawns will just kind of start running around, like, and just playing around? Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that's what that fawn was doing, because it came, we, we crested the hill, and it was cresting right at the same time we were, and it blew and took off running while another doe stood up out of the bedding area, took off running, blowing, and then... A few minutes later, went by. Some other deer had stand up, accidentally spooked them. They took off blowing. So we just sat there for like 15, 20 minutes. And sure enough, a buck that we had been hunting back in that area stood up right in the middle of where all those does had just flushed from. And he just stood up, just his antlers sticking out, and he just scanned that whole area for, you know, 10, 15 minutes before he even took a step. And I think that, you know... The mistake comes when you bump one deer, then you just just get pissed off and you just keep going. You're like, ah, you know, dang it, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to spook any deer. I don't want to bump in anything. Well, you know, don't let that get you discouraged. Just know that okay, we're getting close to more deer probably. So just slow down, take a minute, sit there, maybe have a snack, drink some water, just kind of hang out for a little bit because sometimes if you get now, I think if you get pissed off and you just keep plowing through it, you're, you are going to continue to bump deer. But if you let things calm down, settle yourself down a little bit and just get right back into that cadence after things have, you know, I guess calmed down. And a lot of times you're not hurting as much as if you just keep plowing through. Mm-hmm. I, I love the idea of this because I think one of the things that, I mean, if you, if you talk to a lot of guys even just, or even analyze our own hunts, like me and Dan year after year, one of the things we always come back to is that, you know, 
maybe we overhunted this spot or maybe we didn't move fast enough on this new information. We didn't move the stand that day. We waited two days and it was too late. Mm-hmm. When you're on the ground, there's nothing mm-hmm. holding you back from making the move on the fly, being mobile, mm-hmm. um, not overhunting the same thing. Uh, you know, that like you, you mentioned earlier, the power of the first sit. When you're yep. hunting on the ground like this, you can do that every single hunt. Um, mm-hmm. That's it's very appealing. Um, I hope Dan. I hope you yeah. do this. I hope you really do this, Dan, because I I think this is. Uh, I think I'm gonna, you know, dabble with it a little bit more myself. I feel like any way you I, can. Man, I. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say any way you can remove obstacles to to doing the right thing. It's a good idea. So whether that means removing a tree stand completely, so it's easier to to make those moves when you need to, or you know something I did this year is I started testing a saddle because that would make things easier mm-hmm. to make a quick move. Um, oh, for sure. I think all those things can help. Well, and no, then we, the fact got, that go ahead in Iowa, right? I mean, the first fifteen to twenty days of October, there's still crops in Mm -hmm. the fields so like for me i can definitely see a scenario like that playing out where i'm just going and hiding in a cornfield or i'm going and hiding in in a buffer strip that that could that could open up a whole new can of worms there talking about crops being being up versus not up i mean if there's ever a time to go in and blow up the world go blow them up bedding in a cornfield i mean a lot of times absolutely you know growing up in western ohio you know there's lots of bucks that are spending a lot of time in the corn and like, if there's a better time to go bust them out, I mean, they're not going to be there when that corn comes down. Like if they're on an island of trees in the middle of a cornfield, like they're going to bed there pretty consistently until that, you know, those, you know, factors change and the corn comes out and then they're going to be somewhere completely different. Like you might as well go after them then because you're definitely not going to get them in the spots, you know, I mean, they're just not spending time in those areas that they will be you know, a month or two down the road. And I think, and, and honestly, the whole reason that I really kind of took this, you know, ground hunting thing and then just kind of ran with it is I want, I want to at least like help people feel confident about it and, confident about trying something different and i'm not saying that it's for everybody i'm not but i think that there's a lot of opportunity there that people are missing out on because you know just kind of like that rule book has said for so long you know like hunt out of a tree stand you know don't don't bump into deer early in the season um you know don't i I don't know don't you know spray your boots down and stuff like i mean all that stuff like is just for me, don't wear blue. Like, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would, I would stick with that one. I would not wear blue. <laughs> Sorry, but, continue. But you know, I think, but I think that, you know, just having that confidence to be able to try something different, it's really, you know, I want, I want people to feel okay trying something different. I want them to, I want people to feel okay when they bump a buck and try to learn something from it, and and not, not have a season of, I mean, I had, and and here's the main reason when I was in college, I got into a rut. I got into, you know, kind of a position where I was getting content, you know, had stands where I'd killed bucks before I had areas on public land that I'd, you know, was, you know, like 
consistent spots and I just limited myself to that stuff and limited myself to these areas that I'd, you know, been scouting and been hunting for years and, you know, stands that I killed bucks in. And then it just got stagnant and it just like nothing was getting, the encounters weren't increasing, you know, the, um, amount of deer I was shooting was not increasing. It was just stagnant. It was all just the same. And I got super fed up with that and, you know, just wanted to get outside of, you know, my comfort zone a little bit. And, and even before I start hunting on the ground, I feel like, you know, we were definitely doing that. Um, it's just those years I think back on them and I'm, you know, just really disappointed that I didn't start doing it earlier, you know, just trying something different, trying to think outside of the box as much as possible. And, you know, since then, the amount of encounters that I've had since I've started thinking outside the box, whether that's tree stand, um, in a tree stand on the ground, whatever, that's when the encounters really started skyrocketing, like went from, you know, maybe at the best years, even like in Iowa, we were, you know, let's say how five really good encounters with a mature buck in Iowa. And then when we started going, just like really getting out of the comfort zone and really trying to push the envelope and get close to where these bucks were betting, like the encounters just went like through the roof. Like it's like every other time we're going out, we're just seeing a buck, you know, maybe we're not killing him necessarily, but we're like seeing way more, way more bucks that we're looking to shoot than before. And you know, that really was eye opening to me. Yeah. There's something, there's something to be said about the fact that lots of times we do kind of limit ourselves by this arbitrary known way of you're supposed to do it. And you just kind of, it's easy to get mm-hmm. stuck in that. Like, okay, this is the way you're supposed to do it. So you just do it that way. But to your point, you know, you see one guy do it a different way. And you're like, Oh, that, that can work. That kind of opens up all these new yeah. possibilities. That's, that's exciting. So it's been cool to see, you know, what Jared's been doing, white tail adrenaline, what you're doing with mm-hmm. this. Um, or, you know, mm-hmm. all sorts of different ideas out there, you know, Andre DeQuisto, oh, getting yeah. the, the bump and dump idea out there that I feel like now Dan and then you guys <laughs> have been kind of evolving similar tactics around that. Um, there's a mm-hmm. lot of ways to skin the cat. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think to your point, like, I think that just having, you know, a playbook with all different types of plays in it is, is way more effective than just limiting yourself and feeling like you're limiting yourself to one, one specific tactic. Like, like I still like hunting funnels during the rut and I still like hunting. I love one of like one of the best setups I think in the flat river bottom country of Iowa is like get on a river with a perpendicular wind to that river channel and sit there. And like a buck is going to cruise down it, especially if you're close to where there's, you know, really good bedding habitat. Like sitting on a river to me is like such an unbelievable tactic. It works out here super well, but like, I don't want to just be limited to that play. You know, I don't want to be, I, I personally don't want to sit in a tree stand for seven days straight on funnels. Like I like to do it occasionally, but I don't want to do it every single day of the season. And and I also don't want to wait for that to be the only opportunity, I guess, if that makes sense, you know. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. yeah, it does. Um, so two final questions on the ground hunting deal. Um, 
Can you talk about how you're thinking about the wind when you are heading in? And then also if you decide to set up from the ground, if you think about wind differently at all, then, you know, if you're hunting in a tree stand. And then the last thing on that front, this is kind of a two-part question. Um, part two mm-hmm. is talk about actually getting the shot, getting drawn back. Because it sounds like encounters are, you know, definitely possible, but it's got to be a little bit harder to pull off those shots on the ground. Um, so I'm curious about those two things. Yeah, uh, I, I think those are really good questions. And I think the thing about the wind, I think maybe my answer may may be a little bit different than expected. Like what I found with the wind on the ground, now I approach it the same way that you would um, on, you know, going to a tree stand or with a tree stand set up. Like I'm always going into the wind or across wind. Like I don't ever want to have the wind in my back. Um, and a lot, I like crosswinds just as much as I like the wind in my face. Um, and, and the reason being is, is if sometimes I feel like I'm going directly into the wind, that buck is just betting with his face pointed right at me. You know, you know, if you've, if you've watched bucks bed and, um, a lot of, you know, almost always they're betting. I wouldn't say always, but they're almost always betting facing downwind. Yeah. And, that's why I kind of like that crosswind is sometimes I feel like you can kind of catch them from the side and you, you know, even Sean and I last year on November 19th, I think we snuck up on three bedded bucks and we were like 50 yards from them. We had a crosswind and they had no idea where they were, we were there and they had every advantage to see us except for the way that we approached it with a crosswind. Um, and then the other thing with the wind that I found is like when you're set up, you don't get as much of that crazy swirling and crazy thermal play that you get when you're 15, 20 foot up in a tree stand. Like your wind a lot of times is just like going into, you know, kind of getting stuffed by cedars or willows or tall grass, whatever it may be. It's not traveling. It doesn't seem to travel quite as far as it does when you're elevated. Like it seems like you're, your your scent your downwind area is way bigger you know the spook zone i guess is like way bigger when you're in a stand than when you're on the ground consistently been spotted less on ground setups and i would say pretty consistently have been winded less than tree stands or yeah than tree stand setups um it's it sounds weird but like do a lot of you know we carry milkweed with us all the time and like a lot of times you drop that milkweed and it just like gets stuffed by something and it doesn't seem like it's traveling quite as far as when you get up in a stand, you got all that open ground down below you for that wind to get down, catch weird, different thermals, different swirls. Definitely makes sense, man. Yeah. It's like, it's been a really eye opening. (laughs) Um, just seeing how that wind goes away from the ground setup. It's, it's, it's pretty crazy. I'm really, really pleased with that. And you're, you know, I'm the stinkiest guy ever out there. Like I don't, I don't use any, um, like I, I don't have enough time with all the editing and stuff we do. We don't have any time to do, um, you know, any type of trying to control our scent and try to smell anything less than, you know, just a stinky human. So like, I, I want to know that that wind isn't just doing crazy stuff. And I found, you know, on the ground, it just seems to be just a little bit more consistent and just doesn't seem to travel as far. And then 
I guess as far as the shot goes, um, I love the shot opportunities because it's like you're shooting at a target. You know, when you get up in the tree stand and elevated, you're starting to talk about some weird angles sometimes, especially if you're getting way up in a tree stand. Um, I've actually been talking a lot about this year. You know, we actually got some saddles, tree saddles as well, and we're excited about trying those. Yeah, pretty sweet. You know, we've been talking, yeah, I think the opportunity is unbelievable just being mobile. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the shot, and I can, I'll touch on drawing in a minute, but, you know, the shot angles has, have been a huge game changer for me because the shots that I messed up when I was younger, I used a lot of climber climbing stands when I was younger you know that was my mobile setup because in Ohio the trees aren't quite as bushy as they are out here in Iowa and like Ohio trees are really straight like telephone poles like you don't have a lot of that horizontal branch and kind of that brushy type tree that you get in in you know other parts of the Midwest so I was a lot of times just trying to get super super far up in trees in the climber and that in turn would like get these really horrible angles to where a lot of the shots that I messed up, I, I really in hindsight now think if I would have just been lower, I would have had more vitals to work with. You know, the higher you get, the weirder that angle gets. And I've, I've made a lot of shots on deer that, you know, I've made a lot of shots on deer that I've, I have recovered all these, but you know, like one lung liver, and that's a lot of that has to do with like a, a high tree stand angle. You know, when you're on the ground, you're shooting at that deer, like eye level flat. Like you've got all that to work with. You don't have any weird angles from being too, too far up. And that's my, like my, really my favorite part about the ground hunting is the shot angles. You know, and when, when one's at 20 yards, he never looks like he's further than 20 yards. He looks like right. he's 20 yards, you yeah. know, like, like you're shooting at your 3d target in the backyard it's awesome that's nice like so instinctual you know you just draw back center that pin and you don't have to think about much more than that and then i guess as far as drawing the the i actually just got a hold of a matthews triax and i love that thing because it's super short mm-hmm. it's like what is it 28 inches do you have one mark i do yep it's t- it yes, 28 inches. It's 28 inches. That thing feels so tiny. Yeah. And I love that because yeah. like that makes it so easy to draw on the ground. I do a lot of like basically put that low, that bottom limb parallel to the ground as close as I can and draw the bow facing down and then, then rise up. Like if you watch, um, the buck I killed in, uh, Iowa last year, and that, I know that one's a little bit different. I actually stood all the way up because I knew that when he was going behind a bush, I could just stand up and draw. But the biggest thing is, is just keeping your profile low. If they're, if they're, you know, if they're going to be able to see you, keep that profile low. And then I just ease up to them. And I've drawn, I practice draw on a ton of deer to make sure that like, and I highly recommend that whether you're in a tree stand or you're in a, um, on the ground, tree saddle, whatever. Like the more experience you get practice drawing, the better, you know, you get it just making that decision. And it just comes more natural when, you know, it's a moment of truth. But, um, 
the, again, the biggest thing is keeping a low profile and just, you know, using, using the vegetation and the terrain to your advantage. Like if he can't, if you can't see his eyes and you got a chance to draw, do it then and be ready. Um, and I've actually found that it's pretty easy to, to pull off, especially in grassy habitat. If you got enough grass that like I sit on my knees mostly and like if I'm sitting on my knees and I can draw that bow below that line of vegetation, a lot of times it's pretty, you know, pretty easy to do without them seeing you. Yeah. It's all about that timing. It seems like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same as if you're in a tree stand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's interesting. Dan, I know you got to drop off here kind of soon. So do you have any final thing you want to make sure we, we cover with Zach before you have to bail? I just am kind of curious, uh, when it comes to like making, like making the decision, right? I mean, there, there had to be a whole bunch of failures, uh, in, in what you do that led you to the method that you're you know, hunting right now. So maybe like talk about a couple big failures that were maybe aha moments. That's like, Hey, gosh, darn it, man, I should have done this. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I guess as far as the, the, like the cadence and moving or like the, the setups, um, like once you've got to a spot, you know, that a lot of that's just like, major hard you know <laughs> like hard loss trial and error right like yeah we didn't have enough cover there or um one one thing that really sticks out to me um there was a hunt last year I believe it was october 18th and there was this there was this bedding area that i had hunted i actually jumped a buck out of it the year prior and just by hunting back there the year prior you know i kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together and there was this scrape line I knew of that was right on the transition line of the bedding area and uh, Jake and I went in there to still hunt it that morning and I'll be darned if like we weren't going in there I was sitting there talking to the camera so stupid like about all the sign that we were seeing and like how it was you know <laughs> looking really good and you know we we're basically talking about hey we found the hot sign right <laughs> and sure enough we were sitting in a place where we didn't have enough cover and we weren't set up. We were going to continue moving, but like this was a huge, huge, like, like learning, like, just like point of learning. Like we, we messed this up so bad. I had a decoy I had a little, one of those heads up silhouette decoys and I had that. So that was a little bit of cover, but like we were just pretty much sitting out in the open. Now we both had ghillie suits on, so that definitely helps, but we didn't have any like, big trees or anything around us. We were just kind of sitting out like sore thumb, a little bit of grass beside us, which helps us a little bit, but sure enough, we're sitting there and like, this is all like captured on video. I'm just like, wait, do you hear that? It's like, it's gotta be a buck like scraping. Like it just was like, you know, that classic, just like buck in there, just hoofing up the place. And sure enough, I look up and just this tank, is standing there looking towards us. Oh, geez. And I was like, I don't know. Like, he's too close. Like, <laughs> we're in a bad spot. <laughs> so I, I did my best to get that decoy in front of me. And I did get it set up and kind of shoved it down on the ground so it's sitting up in front of me. And he saw it. He started to circle downwind, and he's in bow range. He's 30 yards, but didn't have a really good clear shot. 
and I got drawn on him and everything, but I just didn't have a good shot. But like he eventually was just got weirded out by the situation blew and just kind of slowly bounded and then, and then walked away. And that moment was like, Hey, if you're still hunting, never stop where there's not cover, dude. Like that's so dumb. Like why were we just sitting out in the middle of the open? I, I, I really think that if we'd have just had a big tree to hide most of our body behind, like we'd have got a shot at that buck. I think he would have tried to circle downwind of that decoy and got in very, very close range of us. Then we'd have been able to shoot him. But you know, just the fact that we had nothing else was a huge, huge, like don't do that anymore. And like now, and another thing that I maybe should have touched on earlier when we were talking about cadence is like, always looking at the next place of like, okay, we're here now. We've got cover. If a deer shows up, this is how I'm going to draw. This is where, you know, I've got a shot here. I've got a shot here. But then if we're going to make 10 more yards, like that's the next, next place. And then that's the shooting lane. You're almost picking the next spot before you get to it. You know, you kind of have a small goal in mind or like, or maybe you make it halfway. Maybe I make it halfway and a deer starts coming towards us. Like, how are we going to make cover work? You know, it's just it's got to be a constant thing in your mind of like, how can I grab some cover real quick and make it, make it work? Mm-hmm. And I think that we learned that hard that day. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's silly and it's, it's funny now, but like, <laughs> we were just like, how did we just make that mistake? Like, that was so dumb. Like, we were, we literally were exactly where, we expected them to be working that scrape line and that's exactly what he was doing. You know, everything that we had planned was right, except for we just didn't have enough color and it was just silly. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, that was a hard one. My first year elk hunting, my, my buddy I was with said this same thing, never stop in an opening, never stop or do a calling sequence or take any time to glass or anything unless you're set up somewhere with cover because exactly what you said things can happen so quick they can all of a sudden be an elk that shows up and if you aren't set up with cover you're stuck hung out to dry and you just always need to plan for that happening be ready for it just in case it does because the one time that it happens and you're not ready you know you had the moment you had <laughs> and uh yeah, shake your yeah, head kind of moment yeah for sure and i think that i think what was the most disappointing was that jake and i both are like you know, really, really into turkey hunting. And like one of my, one of my biggest like pet peeves is like calling without like previously looking for a place that you can dive into. Like if I'm not standing right beside it, I'm, you know, a step from it because if a bird gobbles and he's inside of 50 yards, like he might be coming right now yeah. <laughs> and, and you need to grab that cover. And it's like, that was just, a, it just totally went over our head when we were deer hunting that day. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I hope to never make that mistake again. Surely I will at some point, but, you know, we learned a lot from it that day. And I guess one other thing I wanted to quickly touch on, you know, to kind of get to, um, you know, I guess getting to that point of, you know, really looking hard for that hot sign and not setting up until you find it is, I just, when I was talking about being in a rut at one point and hunting and, you know, kind of doing the same old, same old, it was like, you'd go into these spots and it's like the sign's not there. You know, the scrape that might've been there the year prior isn't hot. It isn't opened up. Um, you know, the rubs aren't there. And I just feel like 
I wasted so many sits in spots that like are good spots, but just aren't the hot spot. And just, you know, looking back at old footage, looking back at, you know, from, from high, you know, I've started, I started filming, you know, just with my buddies, like we're in high school. So I have like tons of, tons of things I could go back and look at. And it's like those days we were having the best hunts. It's like, we're always in the hot time. The days that we were having the bad hunts, we were always not in the hot time. And I think that that's really one of the big steps that led me into this more mobile style of hunting. And, and obviously like listening to guys like Dan and, and um, learning more about this betting, you know, betting how bucks bed and, and all that has definitely played a role in that as well. But, you know, the big thing was just like feeling like at one point there was just a bunch of time wasted in, in not hot spots. Yeah. So, so something that I think includes a lot of the ideas we talked about so far is your Iowa kill last year. You, you briefly touched on that a bit, but I feel like if I remember that hunt right, there was a little bit of the, there was the ground hunting. There was some hot sun you guys noticed. There was, um, you know, being in this new area with, I think there was like a standing cornfield or a cut cornfield or something like that, that you were playing mm-hmm. off of. Can you walk us through mm-hmm. that and maybe use that as an example to illustrate some of the things we talked about? Yeah. So what, I guess there was one actually other really important factor and that was hunting pressure that day. It was November 13th. And like, it just seemed like that day, everybody was out and ended up running into, um, a guy that I've actually met on public land in Ohio, super crazy. <laughs> I met, I ran into him that day, met up, met him in twice in the middle of nowhere. He's from, uh, Vermont and just happened to run into him twice, which was pretty cool. Wow. And, um, ran into him, ran and actually ended up running into his dad later that morning. And like just ran into a number of different hunters throughout that whole, that whole day. And we were just, again, not like locking onto a spot. We were just like, okay, you know, it doesn't feel right. Let's bail. And we went in that day. Um, oh man, we were probably at like five different public land locations throughout that day. We never went home, but you know, we just kept bouncing around, kind of poking into spots. And if it didn't feel good, we just left. And eventually we got to thinking about, we'd hunted on the other side of the river on that same piece that we ended up going into that night and shooting the buck at. It was like, I told, told Jake, I was like, you know, that standing cornfield really interests me because if that's standing corn, I would imagine not a lot of people are walking way back in there, going through the corn and then getting into that bedding area. And I had scouted that bedding area with my buddy from Ohio. My parents were there. And um, we just scouted at that spring prior. And, you know, it seemed like a really good place to to be during the rut. So we started easing in there. And right away, you you could tell that there was hunting pressure kind of around the edges, like, there were stands up around that standing cornfield and, and, uh, you could see where somebody had been walking in there quite a bit, but as we got deeper in there, all of a sudden the scrapes started popping up. And then as we started to get into the edge of the, Oh, and then, and then we got back even further and one of those cornfields had just been recently cut and there were buck tracks in that, in the mud. It was real kind of a damp day and damp evening the night before. There was all kinds of really fresh big buck tracks out in that, um, 
out in that cut cornfield and we were easing our way back and got to the edge of the bedding area started seeing you know rubs popping up scrapes trails everywhere and we eventually got into the middle of the bedding area and we did bump a deer on the way in we blew a bunch like you know totally spooked one and i was i'm assuming it was a doe I, mean, I don't know if that's the right assumption or not but you know we were just like like okay if we've bumped into a deer we've seen all the sign you know we've we're being really quiet like nothing else no the only reason that deer spooked is because they got our wind like everything you know upwind of us should have no idea we're here sign looks good everything looks good let's let's set up here and if we need to go further tomorrow you know we only had we only had like an hour and a half left at that point in the day we'd been all over the place and like we were kind of running out of time so we decided all right we're going to set up here and if it's no good tonight go deeper and the whole I guess the whole strategy was there was kind of this little mini funnel within that bedding area where all the deer were coming out of their beds and they were walking down this like very small strip of canary grass. Everything else was like thick cattails or willows. And like right in the middle, there was kind of a, high, a little high rise. and There was just canary grass growing on that. And all those deer were coming out right on that, that kind of little transition line. And our theory was, you know, if a buck is following some does up and out of there, we might get lucky and he's going to come right through here. But another thing that we think about a lot and we've been talking about a lot the last year or so is like bucks crossing doe trails, you know, that's like kind of just a more effective way for them to kind of check for the hot doe. It's like, they're just cutting, they're going perpendicular to the bulk of the trails. Like a lot of trails are just, you know, A to B bed to food and find a lot of scrapes and rubs that are going straight perpendicular to that. And it just, we just started thinking, you know, it's like, okay, if, if that's the case, like there's obviously, obviously a reason. And we started setting up on that a lot more last year and, and saw lots of bucks doing that, just going exactly perpendicular to the bulk of the deer movement. They're just cutting those does trails, looking for the hot doe. It's more efficient than them going and checking every bedding area. Instead, they're just going and looking at all those trails. They're just on one line. And I guess the theory was like, like I said, he's either a buck's either going to follow the does out on this, little patch of canary grass on the transition or he's going to come across here and come across in front of us cutting these trails so what was your wind doing whole night goes our wind was going it would have been per- perpendicular to those trails so we were set up 20 yards from those trails you know anywhere from like seven yards to 25 yards from those trails and they were going in front of us east and west and the wind was coming out of the south and that wind is blowing the wind was blowing towards mostly cattails where we we expected the least amount of deer to come from let's put it that way okay um kind of just going into a mass of cattails and like i said like we blew a deer like right before we set up because it was bedded out in those cattails but it was just one and we knew if we you know, we knew if there was one, there'd probably be some more. So we just didn't worry too much about it and just set up. And really nothing happened for the longest time. And I was getting impatient and, you know, classic. And 
I'm standing up on the, we were kind of tucked up under a willow. It's an unbelievable setup. It was, it was really, really nice. It had tons of cover there, but there was this like big willow trunk that kind of like ran along the ground and then went up. So I could stand up on that trunk and I could get like three more feet up in the air and see further into that bedding area. So Jake is like, <laughs> Jake is with me. He's filming and he was just like laying on the ground looking at his phone or something. And I'm standing up on this log glass and in that bedding area. And I, I remember saying something along the lines of just like, how are we not seeing any deer? Cause like we were in the middle of just like, you know, the hot side, like how are there no deer in here? And like 30 seconds later, I hear crack, like this <laughs> big branch snap. And I look to my right and I just see antlers sticking up in the grass and, uh, it's just super dumb of me. I just moved too fast. I panicked because I was like, he's right on top of us. I mean, he's 45 yards coming right at us. I panicked and I moved and he looked, he looked up and he saw, he saw movement, but I was, again, I'm wearing that ghillie suit and I just slowly slouched down. I can see that he's looking at me, but I just slowly slouched down, grabbed my bow and I'm like, Jake, there's a buck coming right at us. Like, you know, <laughs> get ready. <laughs> And sure enough, he pops right out of that stuff. And at this point, he's 30 yards. And he pops right out. And he looks right at us for one one or two seconds. And he just doesn't see anything. And he just keeps on going. And he came about five more yards closer. And he cut cut those trails. And then got to the end of where he wanted to go. And he started to circle right back into that bedding area. Now, he's not going out towards those fields at all. He's going deeper back into that bedding area. You know, he was that's exactly what he was doing is he was cutting those trails and then he was going to loop right back in there. He wasn't going to go out towards the ag. He wasn't going to go out towards that open ground. You know, it's getting close to dark, but he's going right back into that bedding area. Hmm. And I had some, you know, some shooting lanes picked out and, you know, when I was envisioning the spot working, I was like, man, how awesome would it be if one just walked and put his head right behind that big bush? And he's like, it's like, I think I can draw and just stand up. Sure enough, that's exactly what he did. He went right behind a big big pile of brush out there i just drew and stood up and as soon as he stepped out i stopped him and shot him at 25 yards and you know a lot of a lot of that is you know i think how we ended up getting to that spot is you know kind of like you said all those things that we've touched on it's like avoiding the pressure you know looking for the hot sign and um just being mobile you know if it, yeah we could have very well set up on a number of other places that day, but it was like, we just try not to get too caught up in a spot that, you know, maybe has been good in the past. It's like if the sign's not there, not, not worth sitting it. But we knew when we got into that spot that we were, we were going to hunt it that night. And we were going to hunt it the next day. Like if we didn't kill one that night, I guarantee we would have been back in there the next day because the sign was just on fire. Yeah. That's awesome. That, I mean, it, it is, it is cool to see all those things kind of line up to make that hunt and you know so many times you can do 99.9 percent of the things right and then something still goes wrong but it's nice when all the lessons learned all these things you've been thinking about every once in a while once or twice a year maybe they line up and the <laughs> everything falls in place and it works out so yeah that's yeah it's it's total trial and error too i mean it's just like any type of hunting i mean you're gonna fail for sure but yeah i think that it, yeah, like you said, it's fun when it finally works out because most times it doesn't. My favorite yeah. saying in hunting and in life is you win some, but you lose most. 
you can't you, you can't let the losses get you down. You just got to keep going after it. And that is the truth. So, um, <laughs> well, I I feel like there's 19 other things I still want to talk about, but we're pushing close to two hours here, so we better wrap it. But uh, what's the what's the plan for the rest of the year? Where else are you guys headed? Um, tomorrow morning we're going to Minnesota, and we're going to be hunting with um, Dan Infault. Um, nice. I'll um, do it yourself, sportsman. His name his name's Garrett. I don't know if you're familiar with Garrett's mm-hmm. work. He's on YouTube. Um, and then a couple of other members from the Hunting Beast will be there, and we're going to go hunt some Minnesota public land, have some fun, and we're calling it the Public Land Challenge, but. You know, there's actually no real challenge. We just want to, you know, kind of document how we're all approaching things a little bit differently. You know, we all have fairly similar aggressive hunting type styles, but, you know, it's just going to be a, a fun way to not really even, I guess, compare showing anything that's better, just showing how it's all different. Yeah. And we're excited about that. And then um, we'll do Missouri for sure. Iowa for sure. Um, I really, really, really am hoping that it's all going to line up and I'm going to be able to get to Ohio. I kind of want to go to my kind of my plan right now is to hit Ohio one through ten, um, and then November one through ten, and then oh what else? Alabama is looking like a thing that we're definitely going to try, and then and then that would be later in the season. And then Greg might go back to Nebraska. I know he really wants to go back to Nebraska, which would be really cool. Kind of try, try to hit it at a different time frame than we have the last couple of years. Um, probably a little bit of Wisconsin here and there, and then, yeah. I mean, if we get lucky and put some more, put some tags on some bucks. You know, maybe, maybe even a couple more. Well, uh, I know some good stuff in Michigan. I can point you towards if you ever head this direction. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's. I, I would love to hunt Michigan, man. It's definitely on the it's definitely on the high priority list. That and that and uh, just anywhere in the east, I guess is I'm really drawn to. Just being from there, I've always wanted to travel, you know, in the states bordering Ohio. So places yeah. like Indiana, um, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, uh, New York. New York's really high on the priority list. Yeah, Michigan, all those places. I'm. Sadly, you can't do them all in one year, though. That's the that's the tough part. <laughs> can't do it all, but it sounds like you guys are going to give it one hell of a try. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, uh, that's right. that's I'm, right. I'm looking forward to following along. So, uh, Zach, I appreciate you taking the time to do this just before uh, taking off for a big trip and all that. And uh, can't wait yeah. to see how it all goes. Yeah, no problem. I'm really happy to happy to talk hunting. I appreciate you having me on. I, I could probably talk for another couple of days here at least. But. Yep. <laughs> well, we'll have to do a follow-up sometime, maybe later in the season or early next year, see how it all went. Yeah, sounds good. Appreciate it. All right, good luck this season, Zach, and uh, we'll talk to you later. And that's going to do it for us today, so hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. I thought Zach had some really interesting things to share, um, just a lot of ideas that uh, get me thinking. So who knows? Maybe I'll be running around on the ground this year a little bit, trying some things out. I know it's it's a very intriguing proposition, and a lot of his public land ideas, I know I've already been putting into action in, in different forms based off some of the other people he's learned from. Um, I've learned from two, and I certainly think there's a lot of potential there as well. So good stuff here. 
I guess before we wrap this thing up, if you haven't yet subscribed to the YouTube channel or the podcast, we would love it if you could do that. If you want to leave a rating or review on iTunes, that would be much appreciated as well. And I guess otherwise, I just want to wish you a ton of luck if you're out there hunting. I know hunting seasons are open for a whole lot of people now. So good luck out there. Shoot straight. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.